Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with me another evening where we have the opportunity to reflect into this great topic of angels. You know, this past weekend, I drew back and I thought to myself, you know, we have certainly talked about John the Baptist, who prepares the way. We have certainly talked about Mary, who is the great advent of Christ. But we have yet to talk about the angels. And certainly you cannot talk about the Christmas season without talking about the angels. You know, my wife and I, we went out and we took the kids to see the Christmas lights. And most homes somewhere have an angel, right? What's our favorite Christmas uh, movie? But It's a Wonderful Life. Who plays a key role in, in the unfolding of that story but an angel? Everywhere we turn during this Christmas season... What do we find but angels? So as we talk about angels, we're going to um, place an emphasis on uh, the angels as they relate to the Christmas narrative. huh? Now, I am going to be primarily drawing from Dr. Scott Hahn's latest work, Joy to the World, How Christ's Coming Changed Everything and Still Does. Uh, certainly, I will draw from other works as well. But he has a chapter or two on angels that I I thought would be of great value for us to reflect with. So with that, as I said, you know, the Christmas season would be inconceivable without angels. From the moment of our Lord's conception, these pure spirits played crucial parts in the unfolding drama of the Incarnation. They reappear at almost every milestone in the infancy of Jesus. From Nazareth to Bethlehem, from Jerusalem to Egypt, there you will see angels. This is why <laughs> you find angels everywhere you go. So as to better appreciate the role of the angels during the Christmas season, as Dr. Hahn does, what we need to do is draw back and go into how the first Christians read the story of Christmas. Because it not only took them back to the story of Adam and Eve, but really to the first lines of the Bible. If you were to go to Genesis 1, verse 1, in verses 3 to 4, what do we read? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Now, if you were to go into the church fathers, you find St. Augustine and St. Ambrose insisting that the heavens and the light we read about in Genesis represent the realm of pure spirits. If you were to think about it, physical light does not yet appear till several verses later on the fourth day. So God created these angels of light as he created everything to be good. Yet, as the church fathers highlight, he also created them to be free because only free creatures can experience love. We have talked about the nature of God's love in the past. You know, love cannot be coerced, or it ceases to be love. You cannot impose love. You cannot browbeat love. You cannot force someone to love you. No, 
Love must come freely from the heart. This is the almost silliness of God. (laughs) Here he, he creates and fashions the universe, the world, the earth. And as he creates, he shows his marvelous power. And yet that creator becomes what? Creature to show us how to love. Hmm? To show us how to love. Because love cannot be coerced, or it ceases to be love. So, God presented the angels with a decision, and some of them chose not to return his love. If you were to go to the book of Revelation, it would appear to allude to this event. Though in symbolic language, when it says, a third of the stars of heaven were darkened and cast down. We do not know the nature of the angel's test. Scripture does not say what it was, and the church has made no definitive declaration on the matter. It's possible, too, that we could not even begin to understand the testing of pure spirits, whose knowledge is immediate and complete, and whose power far exceeds our own. I know there's a lot of questions out there as it relates to that. And for this reason, (laughs) it is a subject that has fascinated saints and theologians down through the centuries. Now, what's interesting, if you were to find a consensus within their speculation, what you find is that they believe that God infused all the angels with a foreknowledge of his incarnation. He revealed to them that he would create human beings and that he would one day be united with humanity. God would become a man and all the angels would have to adore the incarnate word. If you were to go to the letter to the Hebrews, what do we read? When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Right? That's Hebrews 1.6. So perhaps, and here's where some of the speculation comes in, some of the angels judged God's commandment to be unreasonable and to some degree, maybe even insulting. Maybe in their pride and arrogance, they refused to worship a being that appeared to be so grossly inferior, even though God himself had commanded such worship. Maybe. Certainly, uh, there's biblical evidence to suggest that. It is interesting to note that if you were to go to the book of Revelation, the wicked angels fall from heaven immediately after what great event? After God presents a vision of a mother with her child. And again, this is speculation, this is not dogma, but it is the speculation of some of our Lord's closest friends, and we call them saints. If their interpretation is correct, (laughs) then we can understand why this Christmas season is so important, why Christmas appears in the Gospels as an explosion of angelic activity. It would also explain why the devil was so enraged as to respond by bringing about the slaughter of the innocents and flight of the Holy Family into Egypt. Again, possibly described in Revelation 12. And if this is the case, what can we say of Christmas Day? We can say that Christmas was the day of the good angel's vindication, and it marked the beginning of the devil's earthly comeuppance, if you will, as Dr. Hahn puts it. Indeed, the firstborn had come into the world, and all of God's angels worshipped him. Mm. Now, when we talk about sacred scripture and the angels, we are to remember something. When the New Testament is dawning, 
we are to see it as something consonant and continuous with that of the Old Testament. The difference is found in the degree where we move in the Old Testament from seed to the New Testament in flower, from foreshadowing to fulfillment. The same God presides over history, but ultimately in and through the angels, we can begin to appreciate how he is moving that plan towards completion. In the Old Testament, angels appear often, as do other pure spirits. We see the angels as watchers, cherubim, and seraphim. They serve as guardians and guides, messengers and catalysts. We see the angels rescue Hagar in Genesis 16 and visit judgment upon Sodom in Genesis 19. They go before Israel, leading the chosen people into the Holy Land. They bring God's word to the prophets. We see angels as mediators, huh? Deliverers, redeemers, warriors in 2 Chronicles 32. Psalm 104 recounts the angels as agents of creation. And even in 2 Samuel 24, as agents of destruction. But no matter what the angels were doing, they were simultaneously worshiping. It's interesting. When Jesus spoke about the guardian angels, he emphasized that even as they were guarding little ones, they were doing what? But worshiping the Father in heaven. Because worship is the primary activity of all pure spirits. Worship is what angels do. And for this reason, the Old Testament often associates the angels with what? The sacrificial cult. Remember where the word cult comes from, right? Cultus, to worship. A few weeks ago, when we were talking about the importance of culture, we really drew this out. And it's always important to see the relationship going on here between culture or cult and worship. The word cult comes from Latin cultus, meaning to worship, okay? Well, as we have talked about before, and what's important for us to understand is what's always tied to cult is sacrifice. This is what defines the Old Testament. So when Abraham goes to Mount Moriah to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, an angel is there to stay his hand. When the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel are carrying out their priestly service in the temple, they see visions of angels in the sanctuary, huh? So maybe we shouldn't be surprised at the beginning of St. Luke's gospel to find an angel appearing in the temple to a certain priest by the name of Zechariah. If you are a faithful listener to this program, uh, you know that we talked about Zechariah and Mary last week, huh? What was Zechariah doing? He was simply doing his priestly duty in the temple. He was offering incense at the appropriate altar when who appeared? An angel of the Lord. This angel brings him good news. That his wife, Elizabeth, who has been infertile all her life, will bring forth a child. And not just any child, but a prophet, great before the Lord. The angel even identifies himself by name, something only three angels do in all of the Bible. He is Gabriel, a figure Zechariah would have recognized from the book of Daniel. However, Zechariah is not overcome by the message, apparently, because as we talked about it before, <laughs> he was struck mute and deaf. We know the story. The angel then goes to the home of Mary, a kinswoman of Zechariah, to tell her that she will conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit and bear the Messiah, the Christ, into the world. Mary believes the angel and accepts his word. Thus, the adventure of Christmas begins through the ministry of angels.
the adventures of Christmas begins through the ministry of angels. What does the word angel mean? The, the word angel means what? Messengers, earthly messengers, right? They're always bound up in communicating the love and work of God. And thus it continues, this quality, the constancy of angelic presence and how it is prevalent throughout the early accounts of both Matthew and Luke. When Joseph was troubled by the knowledge of Mary's pregnancy, what happens? But an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying what? Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The angel reveals to Joseph that the baby was the Savior of Israel. And Joseph did as the angel instructed. When the time arrived for the baby's birth, who was there but the angels announcing the occasion, not to the mighty, not to the all-powerful, but to the humblest of people. If you were to go to Luke chapter 2, what do we read? Verse 8. And in that region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And oh, by the way, my dear listeners, did you hear that? What have we hit hard of the last few weeks and what have we been hitting pretty hard of the last two, three months but this great spiritual fruit of joy? Huh? Again, that great angelic salutation, rejoice. This is the first proclamation of the New Testament. From the conception of Jesus to the birth of Jesus, we have this expression of emphatic joy, explosive joy, and all of the events in between the conception and the birth, we have joy. Yes, there is hardship, certainly with the flight into Egypt, but it's caught up in this great fruit of the Spirit we know as joy. And this is why the angels are proclaiming this. Rejoice, the angels say. Now again, the angels didn't just carry out an earthly task. They worshipped too, huh? And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Right? They're announcing the message of Christmas Day, and in so doing, they worship the one true God. The angels gave glory and praise to God that day in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, in the Hebrew, house of bread. House of bread. Huh. And for us as Christians and Catholics, that's very important for us because it's pointing us to the Eucharist, that our Lord would be born in a manger in this most humble town of Bethlehem. Manger, coming from the Latin mandire, meaning to chew or to gnaw. On what but the bread of the Eucharist that was born that day in the most 
impoverished of places in Bethlehem. Mm. When we see the gathering of angels, my friends, it is a clear and unmistakable sign of God's presence and his favor. So for both Matthew and Luke, the angels of Christmas are a sign that God is present among his people in Jesus Christ. And this is why we read what we read in Matthew 123. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, as the Christmas story played out, angels continued to play important roles. They were involved in the naming of the baby. If you go to Luke chapter 2, verse 21, they informed Joseph of Herod's plot to kill Jesus. They instructed the Holy Family to flee to Egypt, and they instructed them on when they could safely return from Egypt. It is no wonder, my friends, that wherever you go during the Christmas season, you find angels because they are everywhere in the Christmas narrative. Isn't it striking? I mean, it really is. You know, I say we need to draw back, and I reflected upon this last week. By draw back, I speak to the virtue of recollection. But what's going on? If you are so close to a picture, it is very difficult to make out the images in the picture. All you see is the blending of colors. The more steps you take back, the better the picture comes into view, right? And there's a point where you stop drawing back and you can see the picture the way the artist or painter intended us to see it, huh? And in this illustration, if we're going to appreciate God as the great author, of not only Christmas, but of all of salvation history. We are made to see that the angels were there at the first creation, and here they are, announcing the good news of the second creation. We are made to see that this portrait is one that has angels everywhere announcing the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, an important point to be had is that the angelic dimension of Christmas is not to be confined to the event, to just the incarnation, or for that matter, to the season. What happened in Bethlehem didn't stay in Bethlehem. It changed the world. It changed history. It changed the way all human beings would forever relate to angels. It's interesting, if you were to go into the Old Testament, you see this kind of interpersonal dynamic going on between the great figures in the Old Testament and angels most of them, all of them, falling to the ground. In Genesis 19, we see Lot falling to the ground. In Judges 13, we see Manoah and his wife falling to the ground. In the book of Daniel, we see Daniel falling to the ground. In the Old Testament, when a man fell down before an angel, the angel was likely to leave him there. In the New Testament, things changed a bit, huh? When the angel appeared to Mary, she was troubled, yes, Yet the angel speaks to her deferentially. The angel offers an actual salutation, hail, full of grace, like a knight might speak to his queen. The angels don't appear to frighten Joseph, or for that matter, even overwhelm him. And what do they do with Jesus? They minister to him. By the time we get to the Acts of the, the Apostles, what do we read? <laughs> but ordinary Christians living on in intimate terms with the angels. From Acts 8 to Acts 10 to Acts 12, you see this kind of intimate relationship between man and angels. It's extraordinary. Certainly from the old to new, something has changed. And what's changed is the uniqueness of the new dispensation of grace. 
Why? Well, St. Thomas Aquinas offers, I think, a very important reflection because they lack flesh. And in our flesh, we can offer this to God as a profound act of redemptive suffering. This is what Paul is writing about in Colossians 1.24. Peter is writing about it as well. Huh? The way in which we can offer our flesh to God as a sharing in the mission of redemptive suffering. That when we offer our day to God, there is actual power in that. We must always remember, while we're talking about the stuff of the crib, the crib always points to the cross now, okay? But we always have to remember that in Christ's suffering, he does not say to me or all of us listening that in my suffering, I have conquered suffering once and for all, and you will never have to suffer again. No, he did not give us an antidote to our suffering where we would never feel pain. No, he gives it redemptive power. That is pain and suffering. So when we offer up to God our pain and suffering, we share in the redemptive mission of Christ. And why am I talking about this? St. Thomas Aquinas contends that the angels are jealous of man because they can share in such a unique offering. What does Paul write in his epistle? Romans 12 verses 1 to 3, where this offering is a spiritual what? Worship. Worship. We've already talked about the importance of angels and how everything that they do is always caught up in this worship. Well, yeah, that begins to make sense. And it really highlights the profound impact that our offering up can have upon just not the world as God wishes to use it, but certainly also the holy souls in purgatory. Okay, so what more can we say? In revisiting the manger scene, is it not striking that the holy angels were those who were willing to worship God as a humble baby soiling his diaper, lying the feeding trough of a stable at the outskirts of a backwater village? Think about it. The holy angels were those who were willing to follow God in his descent to earth and worship him there as they did in heaven. This is why if we are going to be angelic, dare I say, we must go to the poorest of the poor. We must go to the margins because it is there where we will find God. The angels of the Lord, the holy angels found him the most in the most unexpected place. And so will we. You know, G.K. Chesterton once said, that if you are going to find the meaning of a man in a cave, then let that cave be the manger. Because there was the first caveman who reveals the potential of what it means to be a human being. Just not in what he can do, but who he is, in his capacity to love. And the great paradox is what? The descent. You know, St. Peter reminds us that God shared his nature with lowly flesh, that our lowly flesh might have the new capacity and the new means to share in the divine nature of God. This is what comes to us from St. Paul's great Christological hymn in Philippians 2, verses 5, 6, 7, and following, where he says, Jesus did not deem equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and was obedient unto death, death on a cross. And as 2 Corinthians 8, 9 reminds us, our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for our sake became what? Poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich, rich in his grace. Amen to this. You know, if we were to stay with St. Paul here, it's most fascinating to take up his version of the Christmas story, huh? Where he couldn't help but use the occasion 
to explain the changed relationship between human beings and angelic beings. He says beautifully in chapter 4 of his letter to the Galatians that in the Old Testament, the angels were like, as Dr. Hahn says it, I like this, babysitters of the nation of Israel. Okay, why don't we go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and hear what St. Paul actually says. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no better than a slave, though he is the owner of all the estate. But he is under guardians and trustees until the date set by the father. So with us, when we were children, we were slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe. Mm. And then, of course, Paul goes on to say, <laughs> Christmas came and it changed everything. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And that's how Christmas changes everything. By establishing the conditions, the conditions for our adoption as children of God, by bringing about a certain identification between man and God in Jesus Christ. My dear friends, the church is the body of Christ. And as such, it is heavenly and earthly. The church is the communion of saints, and it includes as members both angels and shepherds, cherubim and seraphim, and you and me. And so it is, we are to be reminded this season, my dear friends, the Christmas season, it is just not about the incarnation. And for that matter, it is just not about the angels, but what both the incarnation and the angels themselves point us to, and that is the family in particular, and in this case, the Holy Family. Their awareness was not passive. It was active, receptive, engaged, devotive. Mary conversed with her angel and even asked him questions. Joseph acted on what the angel told him. Throughout the Christmas story, angels supply the Holy Family with what? Guidance, protection, prayer, wisdom, and promptings. And the Holy Family is actively responsive to all of it. This is a hallmark of biblical religion. God's people interact with angels. And I think Dr. Hahn here asks some great questions. Why are these scenes in the Bible? Why did God inspire the sacred authors to include so many conversations between human beings and angels? Quite frankly, my friends, the Christian tradition is clear about the matter. The biblical figures model what the church calls devotion to the holy angels. We live with the angels as friends. And certainly, Mary and Joseph model such devotion for us. So we have to ask ourselves the question, as little ones, as Matthew 18 reminds us, do we turn to our guardian angels? Do we thank God for the gift of those angels that he has given to us? those who share in the great mystery of the dispensation of God's Word. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.